This episode contains content that may be alarming and triggering for some listeners. Check the show notes for more details and take care. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. My name is Stuart Bateson and I spent nearly 34 years in policing and I loved just about every minute. Okay, maybe not the last couple, but the good times far outweigh the bad. And when I think of those good times, the memories all involve incredible characters, some from inside the job and some out. And I hope through this podcast, we can explore together the stories of some remarkable guests and their journey with and through policing. On the 16th of August 1998, Sergeant Gary Silk and Senior Constable Rod Miller were murdered whilst working in operation to combat a series of armed robberies. The lives of their family were shattered in an instant. The trauma they collectively endured is unspeakable, undefinable. On top of all that, they had to endure a near 24-year journey through the justice system. This would have broken many people, but not these families. Carmel, Arthur, OAM, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Stuart. It's lovely to be here. Carmel, I listened to an interview you did with Sly, actually, on his podcast series, and I was just so impressed. You did it with your husband, Peter. We did. Yeah, and I was so impressed with the way you came across both of you um, your stoicism your strength uh, and just your view of humanity after what you had both experienced i thought was just incredible how did you how did you feel about all that when you did that with sly um well one i think john um is a really great interviewer um he tends to get out of you stuff that you don't want him to get out of you (laughs) Um, but I think, you know, over the 24 years, we, we as a family, you know, we're a very, very close family, but we all agreed that it was better to not just soldier on, but just to take every day as it comes mm. and to not try and get caught up in the sadness and what was going on, but because we still all had to live your life. And I think Pete's mum, Val, um, said something really profound to me very early on. And she said, come, life is for the living. And as hard as it is, this is what we all have to do. We have to learn to live with this. Mm. Yeah, incredible. And that really came through in that interview. But also what I found really interesting uh, was your career. Uh, post the incident and just so incredible journey through the justice system and your contribution to the community which many of you many people wouldn't expect you to have considering your experience and I want to go through a bit of that uh, today because I think your experience helped shape some of that career and your views on the justice system would I be right? Oh, absolutely that? it did most yeah. definitely. Yeah so let's start back at the beginning um, and it was best defined you did a fantastic speech at Police Remembrance Day back in 2022 
which was moving for everyone that heard it. And it's actually online if anyone wants to pull it up again. But in that, you started with, uh, you never forget the day you, your loved one graduates from the academy. It's an enormously proud moment. And over time, that pride turns to awe. For you and for Rod, take, take us back to that day and how both you and Rod felt on the day he graduated. Well, one, he was extremely proud of himself and I was really proud of him. He was a late entry into Victoria Police. He didn't join the job until he was around 27. He'd had a career in the army before that. Um, but he'd always wanted to be in the police force. So um, as an older recruit, he was... You know, he was a little bit more worldly and wise. Mm. Um, but on the day, you know, no one ever forgets when a loved one graduates. You just, you can remember the ceremony, you can remember the reverence of it all. And I think the thing that really um, struck at the heart of me was um, the vow, essentially, mm. that, that you take to serve and protect the community. It's... They're, they're not just words. I mean, they're a response and they're a commitment to a community of people that you don't even know, but you will be there for them no matter what. Mm. Yeah, that's true. And it's a bit, it is a big commitment. And you know, I think that's why most people join the police force because they want to do that. They want to serve. They want to help people. Yeah. And I get, the, I get the sense that Rob was very much like that. I, I think he was. He was, um, he was always someone who loved the camaraderie of team and, you know, he got that in the, in the army. He certainly got that in the police force. But he loved the idea of working with people, not working on his own, and I think he loved the idea of the excitement that the police force would mm. bring. He wanted to be a detective. In fact, he got into... The detective training school and you know um, after he died within a week or so of him dying I actually opened up a letter um, which was clearly on en route to him so it would have been the first week which um, had congratulated him on getting mm. into the detective training school and you know nobody could help that because it was already in the post, in the post. but um, yeah but I I can remember having these mixed emotions about, again, feeling an additional sense of pride, but just um, thinking about who he could have been. Mm. And I think that's one of the things, and I say that in the speech, that, that when you lose somebody, you, are, you not only grieve the loss of the private person, you know, the relation and the relationship, you grieve the loss of their potential, the person that you knew they would become. Mm. And I think that's probably one of the hardest things to, to sit with because mm. you never lose that feeling of, my God, just imagine what you could have done. Mm. Yeah, the possibilities, the life yep. that was planned and, and foresaw um, just didn't, didn't happen. That's, no. And that's robbed from you, isn't it? Yeah. It is. It's completely robbed. Mm. Rod loved the job. Um, did he come home and share any of the hardships with you? I, I think you've mentioned before that he had. Look, he did. And there's one story that um, springs to mind, and it was when he was working. Uh, he was working one night, and they were called to a, uh, an apartment block in Pran, and he. 
he had to essentially break into the apartment because there had been a, a, an odour emanating from the apartment and he and his colleague found uh, a young woman who had died from a heroin overdose and she'd been there for a number of days mm. and um, in the cot next to her was her baby who was still alive but essentially kind of lifeless and he went over to this little one and he picked up this baby and put the baby to his neck and just thought, oh, my God, you know, what is going to become of you? And, you know, they're not just um, isolated incidents that police face. They they face those sorts of incidents, you know... All the time. All of the time. Mm. And we we forget that when they come home, you know, they have their eight hours sleep and then they front up and they do it all again. And over time, you can see how the trauma of what you experience as a copper can, you know, compound. Mm. Yeah, I think it. I think it's really about you know, each experience lays a little bit of scar material on you on yourself when you yeah. attend those incidents, and you think you can brush them aside, but they start to add up over time. And you know, people have got to find ways to, to release that and talk about that, I think, too. They do, because way back then, and I think it's kind of like the tipping point, isn't it? It could be a minor incident mm. that just sends you over. And way back then, the way you dealt with it was through a pot and a palmer, mm. you know, at the local flying, at the flying Duck Hotel. And that's how you deal with it. Welfare was not what welfare is today. Um, understanding... The impact of trauma on people was mm. never really understood. It was kind of, you've got your, hey, you've got your cap, you've got your badge and you've got your gun. Mm. Now, you know, yeah, we off ne- you go. We, we never spoke about uh, trauma. We just got on with it. But I do think that pot in the palmer was a really important strategy, you know. I, th- I think it still is today. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think there's a lot of reasons, you know, we used to go and debrief in the back car park of the police station <laughs> yeah. and have a few beers. We can't, you know, no one can do that anymore. Life's change, we know. But that debrief with each other is really an important part of getting through that trauma, isn't it? Well, it is. And I also think that that is why there is such a closeness and a camaraderie amongst members because you kind of understand each other and what each other sees. Mm. And so you don't necessarily have to outlie all of the detail. People just get it. Your colleagues get it. And, you know, so they can see signs and they can see a change in behaviour or disposition and recognise it. Mm. On the lead-up to that that fateful night on the 16th of August, life was going pretty well for you and Rod, wasn't it? You just had Jimmy, your son. We did. He was um, seven weeks old. Yeah. yeah beautiful nine-pound baby boy. Yeah. And incredibly, I think you, you've told a story once before, I think, with Sly about writing some thank-you letters. Was we that... did. Yeah. Rod was on... He was meant to be on the 3 till 11 shift, but had changed shifts that night. So it's kind of like life in those sliding doors moments and in fact I've got the roster from that week I've still got his roster um, and that night I thought well I'll wait till he gets home you know Jimmy was going to be feeding through the night and so we sent out you know about 70 or 80 letters to friends where we just spoke about the joy this little bloke had given us you know he was a long time coming desperately wanted and 
Um, because Rod had lost his own father when he was 12 months old and his mother when he was 19. Mm. So uh, family and having a family was really important to him. So he wrote this beautiful letter to our friends and you know said we are just so looking forward to the life that, that we're going to be sharing with this little bloke. And we sent them out, posted them, and then on the Monday most of our family and friends got the letter and opened it. And, of course, knowing full well that he was murdered the morning before. Oh, my God. What incredible timing. It must have been yeah, haunting. For, yeah. yeah. It would have been terribly upsetting for people to have received. But, you know, at the same time, they at least they knew how, mm. how happy he we was. were. Yeah. yeah. I think that's the incredible part. You mentioned in your speech from Police Remembrance Day that... Life can change so quickly in yeah. a heartbeat, can it? And you know, you, your the lead up to that fateful day was like any other. Oh, absolutely! It was just kind of rudimentary. Although, having said that, um, I was going to stay at my brother's place uh, for the night. It was the first time Rod would have been. Um, it was the first time he was going to be away. So on the Friday night, we did the letters, and on the Saturday night, of course, he was working late. Um, and my sister was heading off to Hong Kong to head up a, an international kinder over there and um, so I was going to stay with Brent and Lynn and Rod was going to meet us at the airport the next morning. Mm. And then you got the phone call and, and got called into hospital. Well, yeah, well, they had to find me because, um, of course, they came to my home and I wasn't there so they knocked on the neighbour's door who knew where I was then they went to my brother's place and they hadn't told Brendan that Rod was in um, such a serious condition. They'd certainly told Brendan that Gary had died, but Brendan didn't relay that to me. And so on the way in the car, I thought, look, it's all good. Um, I'll just look after Rod while I'm on maternity leave. It'll be nice for him to be at home with the baby. You know, mm. we'll get through this and, you know, he'll be good to go. But it wasn't until I got to the hospital and... There was so many police there and we were waiting in this anteroom and at one point the surgeon came out to speak to me and he said there's an exceptional amount of bleeding. He'd been shot through essentially most of his major organs in his body and we're just trying to you know, staunch the bleeding. And I remember looking at him and saying, I know you'll be able to do that, so just go back in and just, you know, and just do it. We've got a seven-week-old baby. Mm. And 15 minutes later, he came out, and it was one of those scenes from a movie where the doors open and everything goes into slow motion. And I don't remember much from that, but I remember my brother saying, I just collapsed on the floor. I just knew he was dead. Yeah. I don't want to concentrate too much on this because uh, there's so much good uh, stories to be told about what happened for um, yeah. post then. But you became incredibly close with the, the task force that were formed to investigate uh, Rod's death and yeah. uh, headed up by Paul oh, Sheridan, who, yeah. who's a terrific investigator. Oh, uh, unbelievable respect for Paul. Yeah, yeah, he did a fantastic job. Um, in 2001, they made some arrests. They did. And in 2003, the first trial, guilty verdict. Mm -hmm. Talk me how, uh, how you felt after that verdict. 
Well, we're all elated. We were um, we were relieved at one point, but we were just pleased that it was all over. You know, for us, five years going through the legal process was a bloody long time, mm. and you know, it was two years to investigate, another two years to get it to court, and then the trial, which went for about four and a half months, and. So we're all very relieved and, you know, we all kicked on to a local pub to, you know, celebrate the end of the trial and, you know, to thank all of the investigators and the team and the prosecution's team for getting the result that they did. Mm, yeah, and it must have been a, a terrific thrill to, to have that result come through at that time. Look, it was, but a really strange thing happened that I, I remember going to um, a corner of the pub and I was just watching everybody around me and thinking there's so much celebration going on here and no doubt we were all celebrating but there was still this kind of emptiness inside me and I just thought why am I still feeling like the way that I am you know I, I just kind of felt numb and and I think it suddenly dawned on me that it was the legal process that was over for us. Mm. And it's not the now, loss. No, right, we're still gone. No, but and now it was about you rebuilding your life and mm. what how do you go about rebuilding your life now that you can put this to the side and move forward. Mm. And you did incredibly. Like I think when I hear that story, and I now know what you did in the justice system afterwards, I find that just incredible. In 2004, you were appointed to the Sentence Advisory Council. That's correct. Uh, initially, as a, a victim of crime representative, is that right? Um, I was actually appointed under having experience with police courts police and the courts and, you know, um, the justice system. And also because of my experience as a victim of crime, it was also one of the reasons that I was um, I was nominated and then, you know, um, accepted to take on the community role. So it was a sessional role. We sat um, every month and, and I was there representing not just victims of crime but community as well. So when you went into that role, how did you feel about sentencing? Did you have any views that Look, you went yeah, in? Yeah, I, I had some really strong views. I think my views were very much around um, judges being out of touch, that uh, they their sentences weren't really in line with community expectation. And, um, you know, I didn't think suspended sentences made any um, sense at all they're meant to be the penultimate sentence mm. but essentially with a suspended sentence you're kind of good to go after you you delivered the sentence mm. and if you don't mess up then you're yeah. done whereas and that can be for you know quite a significant offense so uh, i didn't think they made any sense i certainly um, was an advocate a very strong advocate uh, for mandatory sentencing particularly for rape and murder uh, so that wasn't a popular position <laughs> of many <laughs> Because um, most other people well, on the advisory <laughs> committee were academics. Uh, uh, well, well, we had a great uh, balance of people on the on the council. So you had, you know, from criminologists, academics. You had, you know, and our chair Ari Freiberg, who is a criminologist, um, an exceptional brain. Like nobody knows sentencing like Ari. But we also had defence and prosecution representation. We had representation from the Indigenous community. We had representation, you know, for youth. So there was a very good cross-section of people on the board, which is what a board should be. A board should essentially represent the community that they're speaking on behalf of. Yeah. So, um, 
I learnt a lot and, you know, it didn't take me very long to realise that my views on mandatory sentencing were just way out of step. Mm. You know, they, uh, I couldn't get across the first, first base. And I think that's one of the things I appreciated most was just the knowledge that I gained and the information that, um, that was provided to me to understand just, you know, it's not as cut and dry as you know, one size fits all, because one size doesn't fit all when it comes to crime and punishment. No, incredible too. I mean, I always think it's probably the hardest role in the justice system for to be a sentencing um, judge or magistrate. Uh, I wouldn't want to do it uh, ever. Well, it's, uh, a di- it's a really difficult... It's a difficult role for a judge, and I think they get a bit of a bum steer when it comes to what we really understand about what mm. they have to consider under the principles and purposes of sentencing, and you know, and they also have to deliver a sentence that is not that is not going to uh, remove any sense of hope from a person, mm. because how do you then try and reform someone if you leave them with a sense of hopelessness? Agreed. You just you can't. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. So in 2004, you walked in as a hardline uh, mandatory betcha. sentence. You betcha. Don't you worry about that. I was there. Placards and all. Oh, yeah. And then a few years later, you emerged. And well, it didn't even take a few years. Yeah. It was, you know, within the first 12 months, oh. I went, oh, my Lord. Well, well there's more to <laughs> okay. this role. You must have done well because in 2008, you were approached to be uh, on the adult parole board. What attracted you to that role? That's a really good question. I think by that point in time, I had started to appreciate um, why people commit crime. And I think that was also one of the things that I needed to understand about our circumstances. Like, why would someone put a gun in their hand and just kill another human being? I, I've, you know, I just, I've never, was never able to process it. And so, Part of my education through the Sentencing Advisory Council was to learn about the antecedents to, you know, to crime. You know, what, why do people commit crime? You know, and, and, and quite often when we think about crime, we think about, you know, people in prison. We, our brain kind of goes to the top end, the really the bad guys, you mm. know. So, but not all people in prison are bad. They've done, some have just done really dumb things. Really bad They've things. They've made really yeah. poor choices. And some have, you know, have had to be sanctioned in such a way. But, you know, people commit crime for a whole host of reasons. They may, it may be that they're homeless, that they've, you know, that there's poor education, that they've got no pro-social people in their life to show them another way. There's a whole lot of factors that, you know, when bundled together, lead a per- person down a certain mm. pathway. And if you can intervene in those factors, then you're, you're more than likely to um, deflect a person from wanting to go down mm. the path of crime. There's a, that's what I find an extraordinary view for when you, you know, you've been a victim of a horrible, horrendous uh, crime, but over time you've gone those, through these roles, uh, got some great education about what, what all these factors are, and you've shifted. You, you, you've shifted your views. I, th- I find that quite incredible. I, um, I think part of it is because, you know, my background in building and construction comes from a foundation of before you can build anything, you need to kind of understand 
the brief, why you're doing what you're doing. Mm. So you need to get all of the information that you possibly can so that when you build the form, it functions properly. And I think part of that kicks in when you're thinking about um, why people commit crime. What, what, What interventions can you put in place to ensure that you know, they have the best possible chance of succeeding. Yeah, because ultimately that leads to a better, safer community. Well, of course it does. And it means that, you know, I think we all, our community is fundamentally based on a great sense of humanity. Mm. And, um, but when, when terrible crime, particularly terrible crime occurs, you know, we, we we get taken aback and, you know, we then go down the path of, um, no, there's got to be absolute consequences and significant consequences for what you do. But again, I go back to not every crime that's committed is a high tariff crime. Yeah, yeah. And just to illustrate uh, that change, you know, around this time they changed the law retrospectively and one of the offenders was uh, got a life sentence, basically, mm. uh, for, for Rod and, and Gary's death. What did you think about that at the time, this mandatory sentence that came in retrospectively? Uh, I felt it was... Uh grossly unfair and in fact I, I you know I actually made that known mm. um, uh, to people that I didn't think it was a, a fair thing to do that um, we should be we should understand uh, what's before us in terms of sentencing and I've never been a fan of retrospective mm. legislation yeah, it I think if you, you said that you put out a rule book mm. people don't play by the rules and they know what the consequences are for not playing by the rules, well, then that's a choice they make. Mm. But then if you change the rules down the track, you know, yeah. it makes it, you know, I think it has the potential to undermine the, the, the system. And yeah. so I know I wasn't a fan of that. Mm. In 2012, you actually took another step into the justice system mm. in lots of ways by joining Victoria Police. I did, yeah. Why I did. I, um, I was approached to consider taking on a role in strategic planning for, um, all, for the police infrastructure. So that was, you know, looking at where we might put future police stations, what, poli- you know, what we need to do to make police stations more um, functional uh, and more fit for purpose for the members. And... But I was a little bit nervous about taking on the role, I think because I had this very personal um, relationship with Victoria Police. And so I was, you know, the the sort of the Daria in me was a little bit, oh, I wonder if people think I've got this gig because I, I know people rather than I've got this gig because I'm actually capable of doing it. Mm. And, you know, that was my own insecurities, obviously, uh, because... You know, I felt I was really good at the role. I really adored the role and I like innovation and I think Victoria Police was moving into an era of being really innovative in the way that they uh, built their their environments and, you know, particularly with the much bigger police stations and, of course, that's where you and I met. Yes, when we worked on the Wyndham, new police station in Wyndham. We did. Which has been built has been built and you're right you were bloody good at that job too <laughs> Thank uh, you. and i love the idea of uh, community services being based at the police station so that the police station became a hub 
of where people could go and get not only get a response from police, but see someone for drug and alcohol counselling, see someone, have a community meeting, all of those things, yeah. uh, I thought was going to make some really great infrastructure. Yeah. Well, that's what community policing is all about, isn't yeah. it? You know, yeah. and and the police want, you know, they're not there. They're not there because they just want to arrest people. No, they're, they're there because they actually want to help people. Well, find a better should, way. Funny you should ask that because uh, or say that because you actually did a walk in my shoes down in Wyndham uh, I did. around that time. Uh, so you saw firsthand what police were like out in the street in Wyndham. Tell, tell me did. a little bit about, about that experience. That was fascinating. So I was I was privileged to get the opportunity to do a shift. I did an afternoon shift with the crew, and that um, that really opened up my eyes. And I I guess one of the reasons I did that was because if we're you know looking to design a police station, I actually wanted to experience what a shift is, you know, what you do in a shift, mm. how you, you know, do your coro, you know, where your car's parked, all of that sort of stuff, because that helps with your design brief. Mm. And so I did this shift and the very first, um, our very first stop was for a, a child protection issue where there was a child at risk and that was really confronting. That then led to the next job, which was a suicide and from the suicide, we then went to, um, there was some youth who were engaging in really antisocial behaviour and terrorising the local community. So we were out on the beach trying to locate the youth to, you know, mm. get them to pull their heads in. And, well, I wasn't, I was just sitting in the back very quietly, of course. Um, uh, and then we had the obligatory stop to Maccas yeah, for dinner. Did, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah very quickly. Yeah. And then, um, and then, Toward the end of the shift, we were called out to sort of corral some cattle because Wyndham being wow, on the border a of a regional area. Yeah. And I just couldn't believe just the diversity of jobs that, you know, the members would do. But also, they don't stop. They don't stop, like, especially you know, in Wyndham. There is no such thing as I'm taking an hour and a half for lunch. No. Yeah, you no. know, because no. typically you're going back and you're eating your cheeseburger while you're doing your coro. Mm. And I, I just found it... I, it just blew my mind just just how busy everybody was. Yeah, and I think that sort of adds to the stress levels that people experience. You know, we talk very much about trauma um, now and we're, we're better at recognising when people go to traumatic incidents, but also the stress that they're under. So in lots of ways, and Wyndham's a perfect example of this, police officers are on the go, their brains are doing 100 things at once and they do not stop. No. And I think that takes a bit of a toll too. Well, that's right, particularly if you've got to back it up. Yeah, the next day. The next yeah. day. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes you only get eight hours between your shift. Yeah, yeah. I think you've you got know? to get ten now, I think. But um, well, you don't, by the time you do overtime, it's, uh, it's cut down Well, that's quick, just it. And, and so go home. In that eight hours yeah. that you're left with, all the ten hours that you're left with, you go home and you, you hug your wife and, you, yep. you know, you kiss your kids and you try and engage with their day and then you do your domestic duties and then you've got to go, oh, my God, I need some sleep. And yeah. then, you know, before you know it, you've had five or six hours sleep and you've got to back it up again. Yeah. So I, I think we, we grossly underestimate just just how much commitment is put into the role. Yeah, agreed. It's a tough job. It's a tough job. And, you know, I've often said that it's the only job where at the start of your shift you put on a bulletproof vest because it might be the day you need it. 
That's right. You know, no other job has to do that. No. And I think that's an incredible um, way, yeah. you know, and the levels of stress that must cause just by having to do that yeah. each day. Yeah. You must have been really good at this job uh, with uh, with VicPol because in 2015 you were awarded the most outstanding female administrator and practitioner at the Australasian Council for Women in Policing and Excellence Awards. I know. How, I know. That's that was, a thrill. That, was, that really blew my mind. I um, One, to be nominated and then two, to receive it. We were flying to Sydney, so that was a bit special. Yeah. Um, and I felt really humble to get that. And that, of course, was off the back of the work that we were doing around, um, you know, innovation with the built environment. And um, I was I was particularly grateful to that. And I, but I've got to say, I remember um, I remember heading up there. One of those stories. I, I kind of was in a little bit of shock first. Then you know, packed the bag and up I went to Sydney and. I remember calling Pete and saying, so Pete's my husband, I married Pete in 2005 and um, and he's Gary's brother. Mm. And I remember saying to him, I'm in Sydney, Are you fly-? he was flying up for work as well and I said, I've left pretty much most of my clothes at home and also uh, my makeup. so right. can you please <laughs> do bring an emergency that with run. Yeah, can you do an emergency run to the hotels? I went into a panic, but um, no, that was amazing. I, I yeah, it was an, an absolute privilege. It's a very, very special award. Yeah, and something to be very proud of. Yeah, I am yeah. really proud of it. Yeah. So amongst all this, on the 4th of December 2013, you learn there's going to be a reinvestigation into Rod and Gary's death. That must have really been tough news to receive at that time. Well, it was, it was kind of unbelievable news to receive um, because we just couldn't understand the genesis of it and why it had come about and you know we were sort of so 2013 we we're kind of 15 years down the track yeah and you know as I said I'd remarried and life had and started to live a new life with Pete and Jimmy and we were just really um, we were fl- flawed by it and look we yeah what can I say just it just threw us yeah well and what that news did really is commenced what was another 10 years of, of heartache for yeah it, it was it yeah. was it kind of um yeah it, it sort of brought back a whole lot of stuff that you had learned to process and deal with and then everything resurfaced and I guess for, for Peter and I the, the hardest thing about that was um, was going through this as a married couple and, you know, yes. and, you know, then trying to support each other through mm. it, um, which he was just incredible. And <clears throat> I like to think I was really supportive of him too. We're, yeah, we're really, oh yeah, we're really, we're great mates. He's a, mm. he's a, he's a wonderful man and great father to Jimmy. So we just did the very best that we could to just say, well, here we go again, and we just have to put our heads down and just let the justice system run. Mm. By this time, 2018, you finish at the parole board. I did. But you don't rest. You're actually appointed well, to the board. I was only young. Yeah. I'm not ready to retire. <laughs> but you're actually appointed then to the board of the Pennington Institute. 
I was. Can you tell me about the Institute itself and its purpose and, and how you've worked in the board? Yeah, so Pennington is, um, is a board that looks at um, safe ways to, you know, people are going to take drugs. So it's about harm reduction and accepting that if people are going to be using drugs, although we'd like to say no, no is just not going to cut it. So if people are going to take drugs, then what are the mo- what are the safest ways that they can do this? Mm. And you know what are the what are the programs or processes that can be put in place to one recognise to help these people and also to support them? Yeah. Yeah. You know, hopefully to get off drugs, but also to recognise that they need, you know, um, support to, and, and an understanding of what... Um, that their health needs need to be met. You ab- know. Absolutely. And we're yeah. not just talking about illicit drugs here, Stuart. You know, the, um, most overdoses... Are prescription. Are prescription medication. Yeah. So, you know... You or I could be taking prescription meds and, you know, be taking stuff and then not realising that you just can't mix certain drugs together because you could be actually overdosing inadvertently. And, you know, there's there's a view that a lot of them are inadvertent overdoses where people have just not been informed about what they're doing. Yeah, correct. Not only that, you also joined the Post Sentence Authority in 2018. I did. Can you just touch a little bit about that? Oh, I know it's current and there, there's a lot of confidentiality around the actual yeah. work you do, but what, what's the role there for you? So the, the role, I'm a full-time board member, so that is my full-time role. And so the role is primarily to provide enhanced protection to the community. And so that means, first of all, the post-sentence authority is, is just what it says. It's for people who, once they've finished their term their sentence they have been assessed as being still of such a significant risk that they require further monitoring mm. and so our role with the, the act provides for two essentially two purposes our primary purpose is protection of the community and the secondary purpose is treatment and rehabilitation and um, both of those areas really interested me so um, I accepted a position on the post-sentence authority and um, I've just been appointed to my second term so oh, terrific congratulations thank you very much yeah another role in the justice department and working I'm still with the same but it's yeah. um, you know we've got a wonderful team a very committed and dedicated team you know I often I, I often say this about uh, the, the frontline workers I do with the police but also with the corrections workers and the specialist case managers mm. who work with offenders mm. you know I just um, I'm just in awe of what they do and the um, the roles that they perform in trying to reintegrate people and help them through programs and treatment to get them you know yeah. through their orders yeah, oh, good on you. But that's not enough for you. You've also taken on a guest lecturer role at a couple of universities. Oh, I do. I, I and yeah, I do that throughout the year. Yeah. Um, I really do like that. Um, I, I'm the child of teachers, so um, not that I was ever going to cut it as a teacher, because the kids had just run all over me. But I, I don't know. I think there's about this. Uh, there's something. In, in us all, really, where you know you get information, it's passing it on. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I think so that as you get older in life, you want to do that more and more. It is. Yeah. yeah, I think you do. So I really enjoy the lecturing, um, and 
yeah, I do that throughout the year as yeah. well. In 2021, I know you don't do any of this for uh, any plaudits, but in 2021, you were awarded the Order of Australia Medal, uh, which was uh, in recognition of your service to the law and the justice system. How did you find out about that? Um, that, yeah, that was a moment when I really did feel the chills. I had an, um, received an email from the office of the governor in Canberra. I wasn't sure if it was real or not, um, I have to say, um, because I had no idea about it. But again, you, you're not meant to um, know if you're being nominated. And prior to getting through, you know, I started reading it and I just screamed out to Pete, who'd just come in the front door, and I said, Pete, do you think this is legitimate? And we are reading it, and I went, oh, my God, you're not meant to tell anybody about this. So he couldn't tell anybody and didn't tell anybody. I didn't. Um, but, of course, it was legitimate. And, I, yeah, I was really proud and very humble because you're right, you don't do... I mean, I feel really privileged to be able to do what I do do, um, but to be recognised through an Order of Australia medal um, is is something that I never thought I would ever... Yeah, incredible, incredible well, reward. Well, happens to other Well people. deserved too, <laughs> might, might oh, I say. Thanks, when you go through what you've done over the years, uh, incredible service to the community. Well, I've always loved our community. I've always been someone who's been community-minded. So mm. I... And I think that comes from... Um, the way that you're raised and the value system that you're raised through through which you're raised and I you know I remember Pete when we were talking to John was talking about the same thing and um, and he spoke about you know because John had asked a similar question um, in his podcast and Pete had spoken about that you you really are the product of your environment and that if you're raised with you know certain values and you know and their model for you that you you tend to take them, them on, yourself, then you yeah. model them back. And yeah. if you think about, you know, the juxtaposition to that is when you don't have access to those sorts of um, values and nothing's modelled for you, then you know you can fall down a slippery slope. You're at risk, and, and you That's see that right. all the time. And we do role. see that all the time. Yeah. Congratulations on an amazing uh, career. Uh, the choice, and I think this is this is true of everything in life. You know, you you. You probably had a choice uh, to make back in 1998, whether you were, and, and you, said, you said as much, yes, uh, absolutely horrendous interruption to what you were hoping life to be. But what you made of your life since then has been incredible. And, and I think Rod, um, if he was looking down on you today, would be really proud. Uh, and, and I hope you are too, because it's an incredible career. Thanks, Stuart. That's lovely of you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please share with others or leave us a rating and a review. Thanks again and see you next time.